Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture from the spectator world. I'm Amber Athey, the Washington editor of The Spectator, and I'm joined today by Oliver Wiseman, the author of The DC Diary and The Spectator's deputy editor. Just earlier this week, we saw a massive tragedy in Waukesha, Wisconsin, when a driver um, in an SUV rammed through a Christmas parade, injuring almost 50 people and killing five. And as far as we know, the death toll could still be higher. There are tons of people in the hospital due to this. And some of the early details that we've received so far is that the suspect is named Daryl Brooks, and he has a 20-year criminal history. Um, This guy was first charged and convicted with a felony offense of domestic violence and battery back in 1999. Since then, he's been convicted on numerous other offenses and actually just a couple of weeks ago was arrested on domestic violence, battery, uh, resisting arrest and bail skipping after he allegedly tried to run over the mother of his child in a parking lot. Um, So this guy has a history as well of intentionally trying to kill people with his car and just two days before this incident in at the Waukesha Christmas Parade, Daryl Brooks was released from custody on a mere $1,000 bond. The district attorney in Milwaukee even admitted that this was too low, even though this DA was one of the individuals who has been pushing for bond reform over the past 10 years in Milwaukee, now is under the gun because his policies have actually led to real-world consequences And unfortunately, there are pushes on the national level as well, Ali, for Democrats to um, engage in this kind of criminal justice reform that unfortunately lets the violent criminals walk free and go on to commit other crimes. Can you tell us a little bit about what is going on in the House right now with Democrats pushing for bond reform? Yeah, so um, in what can only be described as, you know, terrible, um, at least terrible, if not kind of downright offensive timing. Uh, Three House Democrats on Monday, um, three New York House Democrats, Carolyn Maloney, Jamie Raskin and AOC, um, wrote to um, New York's DAs, uh, basically asking whether or not they were using uh, excessive bail amounts in in the city's court system. And now this is actually tied up uh, with a kind of area which is a bit more complicated to do with Rikers Island, which is, I think, regardless of your politics, appears to be a terribly run jail that needs um, serious attention. Um, um, but their basic argument is like, well, this jail is full because we're locking up, we're needlessly locking up too many people. Um, and what can you do about, quote, excessive bail um, amounts uh, in the city? And obviously, this is this is kind of kind of a crazy thing for any politician to be to be asking about the day after um, someone who's uh, been released on a, a very low cash bond, given their criminal history. Um, has has killed five at least five people. I think you know it's an interesting moment actually, and on the left when it comes to criminal justice uh, in America, because on the one hand there's sort of quite a broad range of Democrats who appear to have realised that the sort of approach they took last year, which was kind of very soft on rioting and was very pro, kind of quite often quite radical reforms to policing and criminal justice. You know, there, there are lots of people that appear to realize that that is both a disastrous policy on the streets. You know, we're, we're, we're experiencing a spike in violent crime across American cities um, and also just completely terrible politics. Um, so, you know, you have the kind of Eric Adams is the, you know, the mayor elect of New York who, who's 
you know, his big thing was was to take a different approach and to be kind of tough on crime. And, you know, even now, some more liberal um, Democrats, the governor of California, for example, is sort of all of a sudden is talking tough on on crime. Uh, Chase Boudin, who's the DA in San Francisco, who's kind of the, the worst of the worst when it comes to progressive criminal justice stuff. He, face, he now faces a recall election next year and is sort of, you know, um, issuing all these strong, very unconvincing, but very strong proclamations about, um, you know, what he's going to do about looting in his city, which is sort of ridiculous about turn on his, on his part. But um, I just think it's interesting that on the one hand, you have even very progressive de- Democrats realizing that this stuff is, is toxic. Uh, and on the other, you have some, uh, in this case, those three New York uh, members of Congress kind of plowing ahead with um, questions on the, literally on the specific policy problem that that I think you can pretty safely say led to these deaths uh, this weekend. Yeah. And, and the other um, side of this, too, is that this shouldn't just be a wake up call for Democrats, but also for some more moderate Republicans who have championed criminal justice reform, um, I think, in an effort to show bipartisanship with people on the left. Um, I think most people agree that there is some room for reform in the system, but um, too many times these types of policies become so sweeping and um, and go way too far in allowing um, you know potentially violent criminals out of prison or out on these ridiculously low bails. I mean, pre- former President Donald Trump was a champion of the First Step Act and campaigned on it very heavily. During the 2020 election, um, Republican Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina was pushing his um, police reform bill as an alternative to the one that the Democrats wanted after the death of George Floyd. And I think there's going to be a real appetite on the right, too, to return to these sort of tough on crime Republicans from the mid 2000s that fell a bit to the wayside uh, in the past few years. I think I think there's also an important point to make here, which is that you know, if you listen to the arguments of people who um, are proponents of kind of bail reform specifically, but also a lot of the criminal justice stuff in general, um, but the bail, on the bail reform point, it's it's a question of, it's always, it's described as this issue where, um, you know, we're basically setting these like tens of thousands of dollar bail amounts for people who have sort of, you know, done something completely, you know, nonviolent criminals who have, you know, maybe they've been, maybe they've been caught with a small amount of cannabis on them, or, or for example, or some, some kind of, some kind of quite sympathetic sounding story. And, and, you know, you can always dredge up sort of horror stories like that. But equally, clearly, there is a problem in the other direction, right? I mean, this is not this, 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 this suspect involved in this lethal uh, drive, you know, through the parade is, is as you say, as a sort of career criminal with with multiple violent crimes in his past, and so it kind of it kind of just as a reminder that this is a, it's a very neat story you're told from bail reform advocates about you know cherry, very much cherry picking certain cases, and actually you know you can go too far in the other direction, and, and the consequences are very serious. Yeah, that type of cherry picking I think is at least partially responsible for how the media has chosen to cover this incident in Wisconsin, which is to essentially run as far away from it as possible as soon as they found out more of the details of um, Daryl Brooks's history. I was just doing, you know, a, a little bit of research this morning, trying to see how MSNBC and CNN were covering this incident uh, now that more details are out. And compared to uh, just stuff about the January 6th Select Committee, which I think is safe to say most Americans don't really care too much about, 
CNN's morning show covered the Waukesha incident for three minutes compared to 18 minutes for January 6th. MSNBC's Morning Joe did eight minutes of packaged news reports on Waukesha and then did a full 17 minutes on January 6th. So the coverage is immediately shifting away from the incident because it does oppose that um, pro-criminal justice narrative. And then I think the other aspect of it is the race and politics of the alleged perpetrator. Um, These outlets love to immediately um, profile Kyle Rittenhouse as a white supremacist, as a domestic terrorist, as a mass murderer, an active shooter, whatever other libelous terms they could throw out before um, even apparently watching the videos in the case. In this particular incident, we have um, a guy who happens to be Black, which I don't think should matter, but unfortunately it does in the way that we view media coverage of these incidents. And he had social media pages rife with anti-white hatred. Um, We were told by the media within an hour of this incident happening that his motive for the crime was merely that he was fleeing from another crime scene when there's been no evidence to suggest that. In fact, the police even said yesterday during a, a press conference that they believe this was intentional, that he intentionally drove through um, this Christmas parade. And so it, it's really striking to see the differences in how they've covered some of these cases and really the irresponsibility um, with which they cover this particular case because certain facts are, are inconvenient to what they, they want to portray America and, and terrorism as. Yeah, I, mean, I think this, I don't like disagree ever so slightly, but I think this goes back a bit to what we were talking about with some of the Rittenhouse stuff, um, at least to me, which is, which is, 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 is the way in which there's just this hunger for sort of a neat, it has to be a neat story, right? There can't be any kind of messiness. So it has to either, it has to be, you know, whether whether that's in terms of race or or politics or, or whatever, there's this, you know, there's this, there have to be goodies and baddies that fit into their, uh, a a worldview. And in this case, there's definitely a baddie, it looks like, I mean, alleged baddie, should I say, but, you know, but it sort of doesn't necessarily Suit their suit the politics of of every every broadcaster, and so and so you hear less about it. Um, I should say, by the way, Amber, that you you know it's important listeners uh, realize the kind of tough work you're doing for them. You know, you watched you watched the whole of Morning Joe and CNN's Morning <laughs> Show. That is, you know, that is self sacrifice for the spectator listener. If ever if, if ever I saw it, yeah, very true. And you know, just going a little bit more into the potential motivations of this attack. Like, I'm not saying by any means that we know what motivated this guy. And I think you're right that it's not as simple as um, perhaps anyone wants it to be. But I do think it's concerning that they had this false narrative out about how he was fleeing this crime scene. There's been no evidence that there was even another crime scene, nothing on the police scanner, nothing from the police press conference yesterday that indicated that was the case. They confirmed that police were not chasing him. When he went down, and to to me, the lack of skepticism with which this was reported was the most disturbing aspect of it, because any rational person would look at this and say, all right, if you're fleeing from a knife fight, I think was one of the things that they they claimed happened. If you're trying to get away from police and evade a crime scene, why would you drive into the most populated section of the city where there's a much greater police presence and you're running over people for like half a mile instead of turning off mm-hmm. on a side street. And then when you get through this crowd of people killing multiple people, you calmly back your way into a driveway and then abandon your car, go to someone's house and you're captured on ring video asking them 
to order you an Uber. I mean, everything about it is just totally illogical. And so it's really troublesome, I think, that our national media was more interested in trying to to distract from any potential political motivation, regardless of whether or not that actually ends up being the case. That's what they were trying to distract from is any inquiry into that, that line of potential, you know, motivation and instead focused on something that obviously made no sense. And every American could look at that and say, Mm -hmm. well, we feel like we're being lied to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think with these things, there's a a recurring theme where it's basically, and this is whether it's the coverage of these events, events like this or, politics in Washington or or it's you know even the op-ed page on 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 politics and race and stuff it's it's this thing of 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 you could be basically as wrong as you like and get away with it as long as it's in the right direction um and just speculate crazily in a way that would be you know convenient to um certain narrative or whatever um and you and if you get it wrong you just kind of quietly drop it and get on with life and don't face any consequences um, but it, but the people at these institutions um, that get something wrong in the other direction, you know, find themselves in quite a lot of trouble. Um, and I think that's ultimately not a way in which you create, you know, it doesn't get, that doesn't put it this way, that doesn't get your readers the truth, you know, which is something we try and do at The Spectator, actually. actually. Maybe, that's a good, <laughs> maybe that's a good place to leave it. Yes, very true. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.